Hello everyone, welcome to the third episode of the Student vs. College podcast. If you haven't already done so, please follow us on Anchor and Spotify so you'll be uh, reminded whenever our episodes come out. They're going to be coming out weekly on Thursdays, so yeah, please follow us. In today's episode, we have Danny. Danny is a junior studying psychology at the University of Texas at Dallas. Thank you for joining us, Danny. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to be a part of this. Um, I've been at UTD for a couple of years now, since fall of 2017, and it's been quite the journey. I've managed to get a 4.0 GPA somehow through it all, um, but it hasn't been smooth sailing. I had massive long-term memory loss around age 21, and so I don't really remember most of my life, and that has influenced me in a number of ways. Most relevant to this would likely be that I'm a psychology major because I lost my memory. I was going to double major in physics and math, but once I lost my memory and realized that uh, I could no longer do the math that I used to be proficient at and that I had to reteach myself long division, I decided to pick a major that required a bit less background knowledge. And that's how you landed on psychology. That's how I landed in psychology. Though I, get, I landed at UTD in a slightly different way. I came here for a relationship that is now ended, but I don't regret it because I really like UTD. I like the people here and the community, and I really like the university and the classes I take, and Texas and Dallas in general. So I feel like it was a really good choice to make, even if the initial motivation has disappeared. So can you tell us a little bit about your, so you took some, so you took some college classes actually before coming to UT Dallas during high school, if I'm right. Can you talk to us a little bit about your experience and, and kind of what happened between you, you, you kind of left high school or, you know, as, as much of it as you would like to share When I was in high school, I was doing pretty well and uh, going to some advanced math courses, but I wanted to have the opportunity to take calculus junior year. But in order to do that, I needed to take pre-calc during the summer before junior year. And so I found a local university called Boston University. I'm originally from Massachusetts. And so Boston University allows high school students to to apply and take summer classes in order to get college credit while still attending high school. And so my first classes were that pre-calculus class, as well as a religious studies course on death and afterlives, which is probably my favorite university course I've taken. Um, I really enjoyed it, but uh, the summer after that, I went and flew all the way across the country to Stanford, and I took uh, upper-level computer science elective and astrophysics. And the computer science elective was the first time I ever got a B plus, because the high school that I went to had an unusual grading system, and so I didn't have a GPA before, or um, A's and B's as grades, and so uh, it was kind of interesting adapting to that and the, the process of having a GPA, but uh, I had no real computer science experience, and so taking an upper-level CS elective at Stanford at age 17 with no computer science experience, it was actually, I, I worked myself to death, and I regret that, but uh, it was one I'm somewhat proud of because I, I managed to achieve despite the circumstance. So, so let me get this straight. So you took an upper level CS elective with no coding or computer science background at Stanford University, and you still somehow managed to get a 
B plus, which is, I mean, in the engineering world, I mean, anything above a C is real good. So, so um, that's very my, impressive. My the extent to which I was familiar with coding and and the types of of computer science things was that I liked writing my school assignments in LaTeX, which is the closest thing, <laughs> but uh, isn't exactly JavaScript. <laughs> so okay, so so you took some courses at so you took you took astrophysics and you took some upper level CS elective at Stanford. And what 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 year was this? Do you happen this off the top of your head? Twenty thirteen, the summer of twenty thirteen. Summer of twenty thirteen. Yeah. Okay. And this was after you finished high school. This was before my senior year of high school. Before okay, so so you graduated high school in fourteen June of twenty fourteen. Okay. Yes. And then, so what happened next, or what, what, what was next took in your life? A, I originally took a gap year in order to settle down. I had been experiencing a lot of mental health issues throughout my high school career, and I wanted some time to kind of calm that down and figure out what I was going to do with my life and with treatment for that mental illness, uh, mainly depression, um, but with some eating disorder issues as well. And so uh, after that gap year, I enrolled in the uh, University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and I lasted three weeks before I had a um, mental health crisis and was hospitalized for about a month. And that's when uh, the memory loss began to take place uh, because I was receiving electroconvulsive therapy as a treatment. And I was warned that there may be side effects um, involving memory, but that long-term memory side effects were quite rare. I guess I'm just a special case. <laughs> um, but uh, it took me many months to realize my memory was even being affected because I didn't really have any outside input to to prompt any memories and any memories from my life. So no one was asking you. No, no you one know, was asking to, to retell me your about, life story. Yeah, about my childhood or anything. And so during that time, though, I did take a couple of courses. I took some at. Fitchburg State University, and then one at Middlesex Community College. And so it was good to keep doing something while, while I was uh, getting this treatment, though I struggled a lot to keep up with the coursework when, well, my brain was literally being fried every week. But uh, I, I somehow managed to, to skate by in those. Okay, so I'm I'm just trying to put everything into kind of a time scale. So this was, would you say, 2015 then, when you started um, receiving this the ETC? ETT, and it was late 2015 oh, sorry, to early 2017. I received over 50 treatments, about once okay, a week. And once a week, and in the meantime, you you tried taking some some university courses. And I managed to get relatively good grades in them. I got A's at Fitchburg State, and then I got a B at the Middlesex Community College course because it was online, and I would forget about deadlines. And I didn't really realize that that was connected to my memory loss, but I would realize, oh, no, I had to turn that in a while ago. Um, but that. Okay. And so I guess after your treatment, so in 2017, what was the what was the extent of your memory loss so were there was there like a certain age that you kind of remembered or like yes. was, was there certain periods of 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 your life that you remembered somewhat i've realized now that it was more an an aspect of use it or lose it so anything i didn't really think about or didn't really remember actively was lost so that meant I did have a lot of semantic memory, so facts about things. I could say, I went to Francis W. Parker Charter Central School for high school. Someone would ask me, oh, what was that like? I'd be like, I have no idea. So I, would, I, would, I forgot all about 
the everyday life, all of the events that I was involved in, but I had a lot of the surface facts about my life. And that somewhat made it more difficult to realize the extent of the memory loss, but I started really forming memories again, memories that are um, episodic or experiential. So things that I can remember as though I was doing them myself instead of just, this is a fact I know about my life. Around age 21, the first thing I remember was I was going to a bar for the first time because it was it was 21 plus, but they had a poetry slam and I love poetry. And so I really wanted to participate in the poetry slam and I was finally 21 so I could go in and do the poetry slam, not even drink anything, just go in, do poetry and leave. Uh, but that that's that's the first memory I really have. Starting after your treatment, did you start or did you do anything or did you start receiving treatment for your memory loss or what, you know, was it just something that you just had to give it time? I have not really recovered any memories. The, the parts so you of haven't my recovered life that, any memories? No, I have not. Um, and I'm okay with that. And the parts of my life that I recall the most vividly are... Mostly those from when I had my eating disorder. I was um, diagnosed with severe anorexia nervosa around age 17 and um, had to go through extensive treatment to recover. And it was a very difficult time. And I think the reason that that memory stayed with me more than anything else was because I had a cue to prompt me to recall that every time I ate. So I still have some issues of food. And so that is something that I, I do remember more so than anything else. Um, but for the most part, I'm okay with it that I don't really remember my life. Like, it doesn't bother me. I know a lot of people find it like it would, you'd think it would be extremely distressing, but it's not. It's just, it, it might be because I, I don't think I had a very enjoyable life. And so I don't think it would be all that pleasant to remember all of it, but it just it just doesn't bother me very much, and so I haven't I haven't gotten any treatment. I asked my doctors um, what they thought of the memory loss, and the prognosis is more or less: you might get some of your memories back, you might get none of your memories back, you might get all of your memories back. Really, we don't know how memory works, and heck, we don't even really know how ECT works. So good luck. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and I'm all right with that. I think that's a good place for me to to be. This is, again, more of my curiosity. But did you, so from my brief uh, uh, knowledge of memory, so there are, two, there are a couple different types, but there is one specific type where it's like, it's like when you like learn to ride a bike or when you like learn yes. to drive. So procedural what, what memory. What is it? Yes. Procedural memory, right? Um, so and my procedural memory is entirely intact and I got to test the age old adage of it's like riding a bike, you never forget. And I can in fact ride a bike without any further practice. Though I must say I was a bit nervous um doing it for the first time. Uh after the memory loss. But yes, I, I have all of my procedural memory as well as, so for, for things like riding a bike, but also I do crafting. So I spin yarn, I crochet, I knit, and I can do all of those things with, with quite some ease because the muscle memory is still there. Yeah, see, just memory has been just something that has very much fascinated me and and I'm, I'm i'm sure a lot of you know scientists around the world so that that that's very interesting to, and to hear so when, you went, when i learned in neuroscience that um songs tended to be one of the last things to disappear in someone with alzheimer's that they would forget who they were but they'd remember a song from their childhood I actually went back and, and tried to ask my parents about different music that I would listen to, and I went back and listened to some. And it is the strangest feeling of deja vu. I listened to We Will Rock You, and I was like, I know this is middle school, but I don't know anything else. I'm like, I have a very vivid sense of people stomping and clapping in middle school, and that's it. <laughs> so 
so so I, knowing a lot about memory actually has um, been useful to me in in trying to navigate the memory loss. So you you mentioned that you 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 did extensive journaling um, throughout your teen years. Is that would that, that be correct. accurate? So. Um, how did you get started with that, and how how did journaling kind of uh, affect, or how did that kind of affect after your your memory loss? Did you go back and kind of read through it, or did you use it? Absolutely. Um, I've I've made it nearly an annual event of about once a year. I will go through and I will read all of my journals and all of my poetry and all of my diary entries. And I will just read through the entire thing. And every time I read through it, there's something unexpected or some, something that I forgot about or something that I see in a different light. And I think it's I think it's really important to revisit those things. But also, it started when I was about 11 or 12. And uh, I didn't really have any propensity for writing. We had a poetry unit in elementary school and I was like this is the most trite and unimportant maudlin crap that I have ever seen <laughs> I was I was very um, dismissive of poetry but my older sister began writing poetry and my parents started fawning over it and saying how great it was and of course as a younger sibling I'm contractually obligated to try to do better and so I picked up um, just trying to write some poems here and there. And I realized that I really enjoyed it. And that got me into writing more wide, more widely. So I started writing short stories. I started trying novels. I, then I got into journaling. And I'm really glad that I did because it's been an invaluable resource in figuring out what was going on in my life at any particular time. The hardest part, though, is the diaries and the poetry neither of them have like timestamps or dates. Um, and so I just kind of have to be like, okay, so I, and, and they don't necessarily, they're, they're in different documents, so they don't necessarily line up. So I might say, okay, well, this really depressing poem might be about this thing that happened in this journal, but it might be about this other thing. And just trying to align all of the different like timelines and storylines of my own life and trying to figure out you know, oh, this poem seems really intense. I want, is this, is this a poem that is just a story I wanted to tell? Or is this a poem about myself and my life? And so it, it isn't a perfect guidebook to this is everything that happened to my life. And it took quite a bit of effort to reconstruct everything, but it was still um, priceless in that without all of my writing, I would have been entirely dependent on my parents to tell me what had happened in my own life. And as much as I trust my parents, that's a scary situation. Like you, you wanna have a secondary source. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I'm really glad that I've been writing for so long. Do you still journal? I don't journal as much nowadays, um, mostly because being a full-time student, I don't always have the time, but I do try to keep up with writing. So I have right now, 2,741 pages of poetry as of yesterday. And wow. um, I slice it into 200 page document chunks because Google Drive kind of throws a fit if I <laughs> try to load that many pages in one document. Um, so it's kind of easy to keep track of how much I have. Uh, and I'm also currently writing a memoir. I've gotten about five or six chapters, hold on seven chapters now. I've gotten seven chapters written in my memoir and uh, I'm really excited about it. It mainly focuses around memory loss and what, what has changed and what has stayed the same and how our memories shape who we are and how they don't. Um, and so I'm really excited about that. I might actually, um, when it's more of a finished draft, I'll uh, potentially submit it to publish. I think, it's an I think that um, I can say along with everyone else that um, I think that you have a very, very interesting story 
and uh you know i'll be the first one that you know i'll i'll, I'll be the first person to to purchase that so so well yeah. thank you i think i think that's that's a great um so so you so your 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 passion for writing has kind of spread at utd so you you mentioned that you are um you you're an officer for an on campus writing club can you talk to us a little bit about that? So the organization is called Feather Guns. Uh, it was named that many years ago, and no one really remembers why. Something to do with the pen being mightier than the sword, but then a gun is also mightier than a sword and feather pens. No, we, we, we really don't know at this point why it's called Feather Guns, but we keep it anyway because it's an interesting name. Um, we're a creative writing club um, and we mostly just share the things we're writing about. Sometimes we read directly from something we're writing about. Sometimes we talk more broadly about plot and characters, but it's just a space for creative writers to come together and discuss the various things that come along with, with the creative process. And we have a good variety. We have some people who write songs. We have some people who do comics. We have some people who do um, choose your own adventure games. Uh, pretty much anything that has, you know, plot, character, or words, we have it. Um, and so it's it's nice to have a community, and it's good to have different perspectives. Um, and we we have a uh, a Slack chat, so we can communicate and do critiques um, over that as well um, as the in-person meetings, which are. I think next semester it'll be the same time, same place, which is Fridays at 2.30 on the ATEC stairs. All right, well, um, hey, you know, I'm, 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 I, might start, I might start coming if it works out with my schedule, because that sounds, can, can, can students just come and sit, or do you yes. have to contribute? No, you, you don't have to share anything. People are encouraged to share whatever they're working on, but it, you're under no obligation to either um, be writing anything or to uh, share anything that you are working on. Um, there's usually plenty of us uh, trying to get our ideas out there at any given time. So, well, great. Um, so that's definitely going to be one of the things that I check out next semester. Then, all right. So, are you involved with any other organizations on campus? I am. So the other organization that I'm involved in and am a officer in is called For Autistic Empowerment. So I'm autistic and uh, I also work in a lab on campus uh, that studies autism and social cognition in adults. And um, I found it really valuable to have a group on campus that is supporting and accepting and provides a space for autistic people to advocate and to socialize. Uh, and so that is, is probably the one that I'm most involved in, to be honest. Uh, when our current uh, club president uh, graduates next year, uh, I shall be taking over that help. So it'll be the first time I'm president of anything. And I don't know if my allergy to, um, uh, responsibility has quite faded yet, but I'll I'll give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that you you're, you're gonna do great. So how did you so how did you find out about it, these organizations and how how did you were were there multiple organizations that you kind of first explored and then you kind of picked these two to be active in or were you just kind of saw these two and you were like these are the ones I'm gonna spend uh, so my time. When I first arrived in Dallas and at the U2D campus, um, I had about eight months before classes began. I arrived in January and I started in the fall. So I didn't really have a lot to do all day. Uh, so I went, uh, I had already been accepted. And so I went on to, at the time it was OrgSync, I believe now the SOC office has updated to Presence. But yep, I went on and I searched for different organizations because I knew from my time in high school that 
a really good way to meet people and just get involved in things and have things to do is to join clubs, join organizations, just start getting involved in things. And so um, for Autistic Empowerment was probably the first one I attended. Uh, and I was like, yeah, this seems really cool. And our then president and founder, uh, Jennifer, had, um, we ended up being pretty close friends and she introduced me to the uh, off-campus writing group that I am now part of um, that got together after National Novel Writing Month and decided to just keep on meeting. Um, and I think it's really important also to have friends who are established adults and not just college students because, you know, someday I'm going to have to be like, oh gosh, I need to figure out car insurance. And I will look to all of my friends at UTD and they'll be like, man, same, I don't know what's going on. But I, I can look to my friends in the in the off-campus writers group and be like, how does this work? And they will be like, oh, I know how this works. I'm 35, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's, and, and it's it's good to, to have the perspective as well um, outside of, you know, your major and your classes and everything realizing that most people don't even end up with a job that is related to their degree and that after your first job, no one even looks at your GPA. They just look that you have a degree and former um, former uh, work experience and your reviews from that former work experience. So like we place so much effort on like doing extremely well in college and I am definitely guilty of that. As I said, 4.0, kind of a perfectionist. I overwork myself, but it's it's good to, to remember that there's a wider world out there that doesn't always care all that much about <laughs> the work we're putting in. So uh, I do want to talk about um, what you hope to do after, um, but let's go let's go back to that GPA. Uh, I know that at least a lot of students at UTD um, seek that 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 holy grail, if you want to call it of you know uh, 4.0 or high gpa how did you achieve that have you always been just one of those individuals that was naturally smart or do you see yourself as more of a of an individual that likes to you know put effort and and do you and do you see that as a result of your hard work Honestly, it's some of both. From a very young age, I was always reading. You could find me with a, my nose in the book um, at any given time. I was assessed for ADHD at a young age, and they were like, yeah, you're you're gifted or whatever. And that was a terrible idea. Never tell an 11-year-old that they're very intelligent, because then they just will treat everyone else like an idiot and think that intelligence is the most important thing ever. <laughs> um, I, I was I was a bit pretentious in my uh, younger years, and I, I think I was wrong in that. Um, but even with like a good basis of being well-read and, and having a fair amount of intelligence, I think what is most important is that I have a very... And, and this is this is what works for me because I am, I mentioned I'm autistic. One of the things in that is that I really like rigid and 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 clear, explicit routines and systems for dealing with things. And so for me, it works really well. I have a sort of a taxonomical almost uh, classification of different classes. So um, most classes that I take fall somewhere in the middle, um, but there are classes that um, class one, I call them, um, are classes that I can get away with, you know, anything that's not a cumulative final, I can just review whatever material we went over in the 15 minutes before the test, go in and ace it, and it's fine. I've only had, like, two classes like that. <laughs> um, the, the, the ones that are class three or really hard are ones that I'm like, I know I have to give myself at least a week to study every day before the each exam, and that means I once in the in the morning or the afternoon, I go over all of the information, uh, and that'll get faster and faster as I'm more familiar with it because I have to slow down if I recognize there's something that I don't understand or something that I don't quite remember. And then as I go, I will note down what is it that I don't know yet, what is it that I don't 
understand? What needs more practice? And then I will go over those things one more time. And then before I go to sleep, I will go over everything again. And then just do that every day for a week before the test. And then usually that's fine. Uh, and then the somewhere in the middle classes tend to be anything that's not a cumulative final. I take the two days before the test. The day, the, 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 the day before the day before the test, if that makes any sense. Um, I don't even really study study. I, I collect all of the materials that I will need to study. So I determine, are there any portions of the textbook that I need to read for this test? Are there, do I need to download the slides from the e-learning? If so, I do that. Do I need to look over my notes? If so, I collect all my notes, I put them in order. And just collecting and organizing all of the information that I'm going to need to assess and creating a plan of action for like, this is the order I will do things in, it still familiarizes myself with what I'm learning. And then um, the day before the test, I do, you know, in the afternoon, I will go over everything, figure out what needs work. And usually only, excuse me, usually only 20% of the material is stuff that I need more work to try to remember or understand. So I go over that in greater detail. And usually that takes about as much time as just scrolling through everything and, and refreshing on everything because I have to slow down and I have to, I have to do more practice in order to be familiar with the bits that need a bit more, more work. And one of the things I do for bits that need more work is there'll be a question in particular, if I'm memorizing something, um, it'll be like list, whatever parts of the brain. I will read it over and then I will think back to what was the last thing that I was working on that I really needed to work hard to remember. Oh yes, it was, what are all the personality disorders? And so I will try to recall from memory what all the personalities or disorders are without looking at my notes or whatever I'm getting the answer from. And then after that distractor task, which is also confirming whatever I'm confirming the memory consolidation of that bit, then I go back and without looking at my notes, try and re-recite all of those parts of the brain. Because if you just do, you, you read from the screen, these are the parts of the brain, and then you look away and you repeat it to yourself, these are the parts of the brain. That doesn't really get it consolidated in your long-term memory, that keeps it in your working memory. If you have a distractor task in between, that puts it into long-term memory and recall, which is better for consolidation. But one of the most important things for any class that I'm studying for is to get eight hours of sleep as, as best as I possibly can. I can't always control insomnia. Last night I got four hours of sleep entirely against my volition, but you do what you can, you know? Um, so, to the best of my ability, get eight hours of sleep the night before the test, the night before that, as much as I can, honestly, because it doesn't just help with memory consolidation. It helps with my ability to think on my feet, to craft my words for any open response or essay questions. It helps me make connections between information and to be at my best for whatever I'm facing. And so even if it's 10 p.m., and I realize I have two hours of studying left to do to go over everything in full detail, but that would mean I'd have less sleep. I'd have like six hours of sleep. I will just scroll through everything without going too in depth, without doing the recall rehearsing. I will just scroll through everything, get it from my eyes to my brain, go over all the words and then go to bed. I, I won't force myself to try and study when I could sleep. Um, and then usually I'll try to get that last bit of studying in the morning of. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's important to take care of myself, both with sleep and with nutrition. I mentioned that I had a problem with an eating disorder. Um, I had anorexia and it was really difficult to maintain schoolwork when I was literally starving to death. Um, as one might imagine, the brain doesn't like to do math when it really just wants food. Um, and so taking care of myself 
and and eating enough food, getting enough sleep. It's so simple and yet so important. And I also have to say, before I recovered from my depression, which I am now six months without a depressive episode. That's the longest I can ever remember being without a depressive episode. It's amazing. <laughs> That's awesome and to hear. It feels like it feels like a superpower because I can just say, oh, I'm going to study today, and then I actually do it. And I can just say, oh, I'm going to do this thing and, and do it and enjoy it. And I think with your question of do you think it's more your general abilities of, of inherent smartness or is it or is it more effort when I was depressed it was absolutely a hundred percent effort everything was an effort I felt like I had to work three times as hard to do the same amount of work um it really is a disability and I didn't really realize how hard everything was until now I feel like I can just I can just do things I can just remember things and it's amazing and so I know there's a lot of students at UTG that are really depressed and really struggling with that. And I think finding whatever works for you, whether it's medication, therapy, acupuncture, meditation, massage, whatever it is that'll get you to a point of mental health and mental stability, that'll be worth it. And for me, that was actually going off of my medications. I was over-medicated, but I knew and understood that most relapses are because of a lack of medication compliance. I was all about medication compliance and I didn't realize that my medications weren't doing me any good because I had, I had been on them for as long as I could remember. So many years, I just, I didn't even realize that I could be better without them. And so once I was in an environment where I felt safe and comfortable and I had that basic that basic level on, on Maslow's hierarchy of, I have enough food, I am safe, I can, I can live, this is okay. And then I took away the medications that were unbalancing me. It opened up my life to a whole new possibility, so. Do you have any tips or do you have any suggestions for, for people that are, uh, that may not be necessarily going through depression, but, you know, maybe their close friend is, maybe, you know, one of their family members is going through depression. Do you have anything to say to them or do you, is, is there anything that you would like them to know Absolutely. as someone that has gone through it? Yes. So I think it comes down to three main things. The first is you do want to encourage them to get help. You want to provide them with resources, with options. Figure out, is this person's basic needs being met? Are they safe? If not, how can we get them safe? And if so, what kind of treatment options are available? You know, do some of the work for them. Go, go find out what their insurance, or if, if, if you're comfortable with this, you know, find a list of um, therapists that will take their insurance say, here, I found this for you. I, I figured out a way that you can get help because oftentimes the depressed person might want to get help, but their depression is holding them back. They, they want to go look up this information, but it's too much effort and they don't have the energy and they're already so swamped with everything else. And so make it easier for them to, to access different forms of help. Maybe tell them about the on-campus counseling. We do have a counseling center. You can go there. You can get help. Give them hotlines. Give them even online things like seven cups of tea. I wouldn't totally recommend it as a substitute for therapy, but if you have no time and no money, it might help to just have something to talk to. So give them options and then step back. Don't force them in any particular direction. Don't guilt them into going into treatment, allow them to take that step for themselves. Because giving them that agency to help themselves, even if you make it the tiniest little step for them, you make it really, really easy, it's still a huge deal to be able to say, I'm the one that showed up to the appointment, or I'm the one that chose to try and make my life better. 
and try and assure them that like there's nothing wrong with therapy there's nothing wrong with meds just what the only thing that's really wrong is being miserable in your life when you don't have to be and I think we sometimes forget that I think there's enough of a stigma that people think that you could just choose not to be or that you can you can just choose not to be depressed but it's not a choice and it's not that simple and some people need help and so the choices you can make are to seek recovery and seek treatment and the next thing that's really important is to not make it about you i know everyone thinks i'm not gonna make this about me i don't have mental health yeah it's a problem everything from if you committed suicide, I would be heartbroken. I wouldn't know what to do. How could you do that to me? To, you know, oh man, you haven't really been a good friend lately. You haven't been replying to my texts. You haven't been replying to my emails. What's up? Instead, maybe say, you know, being suicidal is really a symptom of something serious going on. You might want to get help because that that's really doesn't sound like you're in a good place and, and you should try and get out of that. Or if they haven't been replying to your text, say, hey, are you all right? I just want to check in and make sure everything's okay with you. Um, try and approach it um, from a perspective of how is this affecting them, not how is this affecting you. Last but not least, I'd say even if you're not depressed, you don't have any sort of mental illness, you're totally fine, still have someone to talk to. Like, yeah, even if you have no problems, you're perfectly normal. It's nice to have a therapist or even just a close friend you can really confide in and talk about your feelings with. I know, I know it's frequently a, a masculine thing to hide it all inside and, and not show your pain or whatever. And maybe you don't have any pain, but it's always good that, because everyone is going to experience pain at some point. Everyone's gonna hurt sometimes. And it's important to have something in place where whenever you do start hurting, you can deal with it before it builds up and builds up and builds up and actually becomes a real problem. Man, those are thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much. Um I feel like these are these are words that a lot of people really need to hear. Um and coming from someone that has has gone through it it it, it, it it definitely means a lot. So thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, how do you think that you're, so you're, you're a very non-traditional student, but how do you think that your experiences have affected your, your college life and, and kind of that college experience, at least at UT Dallas, which is, which is where you've been the longest? I think at UTD, I'm really lucky that I ended up at UTD for reasons other than the reason I came here because there's a reason they sell the keep UTD nerdy shirts, you know? I wouldn't do well in a party school. I wouldn't do well somewhere where networking is, is a huge, uh, important um, aspect of college life. I, I really like that I'm in a place where it's all right to be a little weird and, and to be a little too into academic stuff because even things that I'm not taking classes on, like I really love academic things. Like I'm, I'm really into linguistics and like history and physics, and math and all that sort of things. And I love talking about it, even if I'm not taking a class on it. And most colleges that I have attended at least, um, People don't tend to be all that receptive of it. Either either you're talking to them about something academic because you're taking a class in it or it's what you're studying, or why are you even bothering with that? It's not it's not in your wheelhouse. Um, so I really like that we have the sort of culture that um, I appreciate. And I think that has to do with, I mean, again, I'm autistic and so social things aren't my forte. Uh, but being able to be in groups like 
the feather guns, the forages empowerment. And I'm also in several other groups, not a, not an officer, but a member, um, like Stitch to Enrich. It's a knitting, crochet, fiber arts, crafts sort of group. And it's amazing to just share something I'm very interested in with other people. And I think also, I really like the how accepting UTD is. So I have not mentioned this yet, but um, my pronouns are they, them, because I am trans non-binary. So I'm, I identify as agender. So not really a boy, not really a girl. Uh, and I going to Texas for the first time as someone who'd grown up in Massachusetts, I wasn't, I had very low standards. I, I was expecting like some, you know, terrible incident that would make me feel bad about being trans or whatnot. But everyone I've spoken to has been really good. Um, people respect my pronouns, people respect my gender, and people try really hard to create a welcoming and accepting environment. The gender center is great. And I just really love that, that even for someone who is weird and autistic and queer, like it's, it's hard for me to find a place where I feel like I belong, but I definitely belong in UTD. Well, I mean, uh, I'm, 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 I'm very glad to hear that. And it's definitely, definitely good to hear that a university that I guess I attend to um, has had such a, such a positive and welcoming environment. Yeah, that's, it's, 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 it's amazing to hear. What are your, so when do you plan on graduating and what are, what's the plan afterwards? Upcoming semester, um, spring 2020 will be the second semester of my junior year. So I will hopefully be graduating in spring of 2021. Upon graduation, I hope to go uh, to grad school and get to get my PhD because I am truly suited to academic life and uh, I don't think I'd do well in an industry job. It just, I went into psychology thinking that I'd really enjoy the bits about um, the way the mind works, learning about the brain, all of that sort of thing. But what I ended up really enjoying the most was the research design, the methods, the analysis, the statistics, the nitty gritty. And I think I can get a lot more into that going to graduate school. And um, I think it'll be kind of neat to be the first person in my family to have a PhD. <laughs> That'll be neat. Um, and I think I can do it. And I'd, I'd like to go into research, specifically into uh, disability rehabilitation psychology, because I also have not mentioned this, but I'm disabled. I have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is quite the mouthful. Um, it's somewhat rare and it results in a bunch of different issues, including low blood pressure, high heart rate, and sometimes I faint, I get short of breath, my temperature regulation's all off. There's dozens of issues that it causes. But when I was first diagnosed and when I was first seeking a diagnosis, it was really difficult to adjust to that and to, to live in a world where suddenly there were things that I couldn't do. Suddenly, I couldn't just take the stairs because I'm a faint risk. And so I had to get used to learning how to work around that. And that was really difficult. And my therapists would try to help, but they didn't really know how to deal with that, that sense of a loss of agency. And so I wanna figure out ways to help people who have, who have chronic illnesses and disabilities and figure out how to help them adjust to disabled life and and how to accept that as a part of themselves and um, figure out how to navigate to whatever goals they have um, and cope with whatever stresses they may encounter. Well, uh, we I guess we, we wish you the best. I, I wish you the best in your pursuit. And I definitely think that you're going to be able to go to an amazing grad school and then and become a doctor. Um, so, I certainly so hope I to guess stay in Texas, of... though. Oh, I like oh, the weather here so far too much to leave. You like the weather here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
any any specific schools that maybe you're thinking about for grad school? This upcoming summer, I intend to do a lot of research on different schools, different programs, different labs that I might apply to. And so at the moment, I'm not sure. I just know I want to stay in Texas because I really like it here. I'd ideally love to stay in Dallas, but I recognize that might not necessarily be um, <laughs> possible given what I want to do. But um, and I, I also have a lot of friends here, so it'd be nice to <laughs> stay in touch. But that um, I don't mind going to a university that isn't necessarily like top tier or, or like Ivy League or whatever, because I, I mean. In high school, I was on track for Ivy League, and then mental illness made me crash and burn, and I probably would have been miserable going to an Ivy League school anyway, and I've realized it's far more important to me uh, that I go somewhere that will be a positive experience for me, rather than going somewhere that's a good name school, so... That's um, that's something that uh, I personally came to, or I I, I dealt with a lot um, back when I was finishing up high school, and you know I was picking between university UT Dallas and UT Austin, um, and you know I, I I I had the wrong intuition that naming and you know naming and branding was everything, but um, I'm I'm really glad that I chose to attend a university, much smaller university, where um, I could have a lot more um, like inter interactions with my with my professors versus going to, you know, some some big name school with, you know, 800,000 person lectures. So um, I've, I've, I've definitely it ended up creating this really cool podcast. <laughs> I definitely can relate to to liking to be able to connect with professors. I, I've connected with a couple of professors here, both the lab director, No Assassin, and um, I've taken multiple classes with other professors. And I just really like being able to to talk to them on an individual basis and really connect. It's nice. Do you have any parting words, advice? Um... I don't know. Uh, anything that you, anything else that you would like to share uh, with other students? To the best of your ability, stay happy, stay healthy, and get some sleep. <laughs>